Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, I uh, got a tweet to one of my tweets uh, recently. This is just from a few days ago. Happened uh, August 31st. This man said, are you uh, an apologist or a political commentator? Please commit to one, man. This is absolutely hurting a cross-examine, whether you realize it or not. He meant cross-examine, not a cross-examine. Whether you realize it or not. Now, for me, debating people on Twitter is a fool's errand. First of all, Twitter, I think, is pretty much a sewer of people who are just throwing insults at one another. So I rarely respond on Twitter. I just put stuff on Twitter that I think people might want to be aware of or read. Usually it's a link to an article of some kind, but I rarely interact. However, in this case, I decided to have a short response, and this podcast is going to be a longer response because, as I say, you really can't respond in any depth on Twitter. So when he said, are you an apologist or a political commentator? Please commit to one man. This is absolutely hurting cross-examine whether you realize it or not. So here is my short response in Twitter. I said, can you preach or live the gospel freely in Afghanistan? The answer is no. Why? Because of politics. Sorry, but if you don't think politics are important, you don't think the gospel is important. Nor do you think the safety and flourishing of other people is important. That was my response. Now, let me say that this man does have a point. And in fact, there's a ditch on either side of the road when it comes to politics or any endeavor, actually. If you get involved in politics too little then people get hurt, freedoms are lost, and the gospel is squelched. However, if you give politics too much attention, as if it is your savior, then you've made politics an idol. And I think C.S. Lewis, who preached a sermon back in 1939 called Learning in Wartime, can give us some insights into the ditches on either side of the road. Not just with politics, but, within any, but, but with any endeavor. You can go too far either way. And so we have to be sure that we are, if we're getting involved in anything, whether it's politics or anything else, that we're getting involved to the right degree. Now, Lewis gave this sermon in October of 1939. World War II had just started. You re might remember that the Germans had, uh, Hitler had gone, into, had gone into Poland. I think it was September 1st, 1939, if my memory serves me correctly. So this is about two months after that. Lewis is preaching a sermon, and he's preaching it to people who are in college. I think this may have been done at Oxford. And the sermon called Learning in Wartime 
is about whether or not we should even be going to school when there's such a huge event like a, a, a European war going on. Uh, shouldn't World War II take all of our attention? And so what he does here in this sermon is gets involved in that question and tries to answer that question. Now, this is the sermon that contains the classic quote. Many of you have probably quoted this or you've heard this quote. And uh, the quote is this, Good philosophy must exist if for, no re- if for no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered. I know a lot of people have that in their, uh, in, in their uh, what do you call it? It's escaping me right now. Your signature on your email. I know my friend uh, Dr. Richard Howe at Southern Evangelical Seminary has that. Good philosophy must exist for no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered. Well, that comes from this essay, but we're not going to concentrate on that quote in this essay. This essay, again, called Learning in Wartime, deals with this question, how can you go to school when there's a great war going on? And here's what Lewis says. Is it not like fiddling while Rome burns? Now, it seems to me that we should not be able to answer these questions until we have put them by the side of certain other questions which every Christian ought to have asked himself in peacetime. I spoke just now of fiddling while Rome burns, but to a Christian, the true tragedy of Nero must be not that he fiddles while the city was on fire, but that he fiddles on the brink of hell. You must forgive me for getting into this, Lewis says, this issue of hell. Here's here's what what he goes on to say. He says, I know that many wiser and better Christians than I in these days, and this is a bit of sarcasm from Lewis, he says, in these days, do not like to mention heaven and hell even in a pulpit. I know, too, that nearly all the references to this subject in the New Testament come from a single source. But then, that source is our Lord himself. People will tell you it is St. Paul, but that is untrue. These overwhelming doctrines are dominant, easy for me to say, dominical. They are not really removable from the teaching of Christ or of his church, if we do not believe them, remember, he's talking about heaven and hell, if we do not believe them, our presence in this church is great tomfoolery. If we do, we must sometime overcome our spiritual prudery and mention them. The moment we do so, we can see that every Christian who comes to a university, like the one he's speaking to right now, or back in 1939 when he's given this sermon, that every Christian who comes to a university must at all times face a question compared with which the questions raised by the war are relatively unimportant. He must ask himself, how is it right or even psychologically possible for creatures who are are every moment advancing either to heaven or to hell to spend any fraction of the little time allowed to them in this world on such comparative trivialities as literature or art, mathematics or biology. If human culture can stand up to to that, it can stand up to anything. Let me stop here for a second. Lewis is pointing out here that how can we even worry about 
learning anything. When the Nazis are about to bomb our country, when there's a great war going on, isn't that trivial? But then he goes on to say, wait a minute, how can we even talk about anything when heaven and hell, we're advancing on heaven and hell every day, and many of us haven't even thought about it. So he goes on, he says, if human culture can stand up to that, it can stand up to anything. To admit that we can retain our interest in learning under the shadow of these eternal issues, but not under the shadow of a European war, would be to admit that our ears are closed to the voice of reason and very wide open to the voice of our nerves and our mass emotions. Think about that phrase. We're not open to reason. We're open to nerves and our mass emotions. And as we get into this discussion a little bit later here in this radio program and podcast, we're going to see that most of what goes for politics today is really nerves and mass emotions. So we're going to get into that. Here's what Lewis goes on to say. Again, the essay is called Learning in Wartime. You can find it online. He says the war creates absolutely, or he says the war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. Human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself, unquote. More on this right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org. Our podcast is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We're back in two. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org, crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. We have a podcast, as some of you are listening to right now, if you're listening on radio, the podcast called is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And by the way, those of you that do listen to the podcast on iTunes, wherever you listen to it, Thank you for putting uh, a five-star review up there. That helps more people actually see or hear the podcast. That drives it up the charts. So thanks for doing that. Tell your friends about it. Today, we're talking about basically the ditch that you can fall into on either side of any issue. But today, we're talking about politics. How much should a Christian be involved in politics? And I'm using a... a a uh, essay that C.S. It's really a sermon that C.S. Lewis gave in October of 1939 called "Learning in Wartime," and he's basically asking the question: How can we even, if we're sitting in England in 1939, nearly 1940, when World War II is just getting started? How can we be as students and get involved in such trivialities as learning about literature or art or science or any of these things? Shouldn't we put every every effort, and shouldn't we concentrate every waking moment on fighting the war against the Nazis? And what Lewis is saying here is, well, there's a bigger thing going on here than even the war. There's the fact that there's heaven or hell, and it's coming to each one of us. Where are we, we going to wind up? There's an eternity out there. Where are we going to wind up? And this is why Lewis says that the war gives us no new situation. 
He says, human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. He'll go on to say a little bit later that war just makes that precipice more obvious. He says, human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. Now, you could take war out of it and call it, call it a pandemic. If you want to use that as a reason to say human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. It has. We could be gone any minute. You could be dead 10 seconds from now. And you're going to be dead a lot longer than you're going to be alive. Eternity is waiting for each one of us. And each one of us will be judged alone. Your friends aren't going to be there to support you or to make a case for you. The only person that you can bring into eternity with you is Jesus. And if he is your attorney, if he is the one that will take your punishment for you, then you're going to wind up in the right place. If not, you're going to be separated from God by your own choice because of your sin. Your life is on the edge of a precipice. And whether it's a war, a pandemic, a hasty withdrawal from Afghanistan, whatever, human life is on the edge of a precipice. So Lewis goes on to say this. I believe, and he's talking now about World War II. And here's where he starts talking about how important politics are. He says, I believe our cause to be in World War II, as human causes go, very righteous. And I therefore believe it to be a duty to participate in this war. And every duty is a religious duty. And our obligation to perform every duty is therefore absolute. But he puts a caveat on it. Here's what he says. He says, thus, we may have a duty to rescue a drowning man. And perhaps, if we live on a dangerous coast, to learn life-saving so as to be ready for any drowning man when he turns up. It may be our duty to lose our own lives in saving him. But if anyone devoted himself to life-saving in the sense of giving it his total attention so that he thought and spoke of nothing else and demanded the cessation of all other activities, human activities, until everyone has learned to swim, he would be a, get this word that, Lewis coins here. He would be a monomaniac. I love that term. <laughs> he would be a monomaniac. Now think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Things like politics, sex, power, money, relationships. We could talk about any one of a number of topics. If we put too much emphasis on them, then we can become monomaniacs. We can become idle worshipers. Anything other than God that takes the top spot on our list of priorities causes us to become an idol worshiper. And it may cause us to be a monomaniac where everything is politics. Everything is political. Now you can see our culture's going there. I'll get to this later in the program. Our culture thinks everything is political. That doesn't mean you have to. But it doesn't mean, on the other hand, that you have to fall in the other ditch and have nothing to do with politics. We'll get into it. Anyway, here's Lewis continuing. He says, again, using the analogy of someone who thinks that saving people, that swimming 
is so important that you have to be a lifesaver. And that's the only purpose in life, he says. And, and all other human activities had to end until you, everyone had learned to swim. That person would be a monomaniac. And people can do that in politics, sex, money, power, relationships, whatever. Okay. He goes on to say this. The rescue of drowning men is then a duty worth dying for, but not living for. Listen to that again. The rescue of a drowning man is then a duty worth dying for, but not worth living for. It seems to me that all political duties, among which I include military duties, are of this kind. A man may have to die for our country, but no man must, in any exclusive sense, live for his country. He who surrenders himself without reservation to the temporal claims of a nation or a party or a class is rendering to Caesar that which, of all things, most emphatically belongs to God himself. Did you get that? He's, he's trading on what Jesus said, said about give to Caesar things that are Caesar and give to God things that are God's. What, is he, what does Lewis mean when he says if you, if you surrender yourself without reservation to a nation, a party, a class, you're rendering to Caesar what belongs to God. What are you rendering to Caesar? Yourself. Remember, in that passage, Jesus is asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He says, whose image is on the coin? And they say Caesar's. And Jesus says, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's. Well, ladies and gentlemen, whose image is on you? God's image is on you. So you're supposed to give to God what is God's, yourself. You don't make anything else an idol. You don't make anything an idol. God isn't an idol. God is God. But you don't make anything an idol, whether it's politics, your nation, sex, money, power, relationships. So Lewis is very wise here. He's, he's saying this is the beginning of World War II. Lewis is saying, all right, yeah, the war's important. It's a duty. You might have a duty to go fight for your country and die for your country, but you don't have a duty to live for your country. In other words, your number one goal is not your country. Your number one priority is not your country. Your number one priority is God, Jesus, who died for you. Lewis goes on. Again, we're reading and commenting on a 1939 uh, sermon that C.S. Lewis gave to students called Learning in Wartime. And we're relating this to politics, and Lewis is also relating it to politics. How devoted do we need to be to politics? And other things, for that matter. Here's what Lewis goes on to say. He says, but the particular difficulty imposed on you by the war, and again, you don't, if you want to substitute something else for, for any difficulty, instead of war, you could say pandemic, loss of a job, loss of a spouse, your friends on social media, that can be a big deal to you, I get it. He says, but the particular difficulty imposed on you by the war or any of these other things is another matter. And of it, I would again repeat, what I've been saying in one form or the other ever since I started, do not let your nerves and emotions lead you into thinking your present predic predicament, predicament more abnormal than it really is. All right, let me stop right there. Okay. Lewis, in another context, points out, and I think many Christians need to understand this, and of course we all need to understand this, is that there is no such thing as a normal life where everything goes your way. 
okay? Things aren't meant to go your way. But Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul said, everyone who lives a faithful life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you think right now that politically things have turned against you, and they may have, they, they're turning against Christians. If you think that, um, that we just got to get back to normal after the pandemic, you need to realize there's no such thing as normal. Or maybe the new normal is that, you, that we all need to recognize is that there's always trouble in life. There's always difficulties in life. There are always things that need to be overcome. And here's what Lewis says on what you can do to overcome them. He says, perhaps it may be useful to mention the three mental exercises, which may serve as defenses against the three enemies which war up against the scholar. Remember, he's talking to students against the scholar. And he goes on to say the three enemies are excitement, frustration, and fear. I'm going to talk about two of them. Excitement, the first one. He says the first enemy is excitement. The tendency to think and feel about the war or the pandemic or the job loss or whatever the tendency to think and feel about the war when we had intended to think about our work. The best defense is a recognition that is this, as in everything else, the war has not really raised up a new enemy, but only aggravated an old one. There are always plenty of rivals to our work. We are always falling in love or quarreling, looking for jobs or fearing to lose them, getting ill and recovering, following public affairs. If we let ourselves, we shall always be waiting for some distraction or other to end before we can really get down to our work. The only people, check this out, look what he says here. The only people who achieve much are those who want knowledge so badly, remember he's talking to students, that they seek it while the conditions are still unfavorable. Favorable conditions never come. We can say that about anyone. The only people who achieve much are those who want a job so badly, they seek it while conditions are still unfavorable. The only people who achieve much are those who want a relationship so badly, they seek it while conditions are still unfavorable. The only people who achieve much are those who want uh, to be healthy so badly, they seek it while conditions are unfavorable. Or seek God while conditions, whatever it is. Because favorable conditions are never going to come completely. And much more about this right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek. want to tell you about a new course coming up. An unbelievable new course. The best ever on the issue of abortion. It's coming up. And I'll tell you about it right after the break. Don't go anywhere. We're back in just two minutes. Are you able to make a case for the unborn in a winsome and a very logical way? Even if you are able to do that, you're going to want to take this course from my friend Scott Klusendorf. In my view, he's the top pro-life person in the country today, training other people on how to make the case for the unborn. The new online course, which starts in October, October 4th, is called The Ethics of Abortion, Pro-Life Apologetics in an Uncertain Age. And if you take the premium course, you're going to be on Zoom with Scott for Q&A and your other classmates on seven occasions. This course is the most comprehensive, 
course on the issue of abortion you can take anywhere and pro-life apologetics you can take anywhere. So check it out. Get into it before it fills up because we limit the number in the premium course because we want to have a small enough number in these courses so you can interact with Scott, with the instructor, and with your fellow students. So go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see the ethics of abortion, pro-life apologetics in an uncertain age. And that's a political issue, as many other issues are. It's also obviously a moral issue. We'll talk about it here in just a minute. Anyway, we're talking about C.S. Lewis and how much should a Christian get involved politically? We mentioned there are ditches on both sides of the road. You can go too far and make it an idol. If you don't get involved enough, however, then people die and freedoms are taken away. Christians have to be involved. And so Lewis is expressing that and many other things through this, through this sermon he gave called uh, learning during wartime. Actually, it's called learning in wartime. He gave it in 1939. He's speaking to students and he's saying, look, you got to be involved in learning, even though there's a war going on. You got to be involved in so many other things, even though there's a war going on. He goes on, he, he said, just before the break, we talked about the first enemy is excitement, thinking that, wow, I, I got to get so caught up in, in what's going on politically and geo- uh, centrally right now or geo-globally right now that I've really got to uh, forget everything else. And Lewis is saying, no, don't get all excited now. You've got to learn in good conditions and bad conditions and perfect conditions never come. He said the second enemy is frustration. I'm not going to talk about that. Don't have time. But he talked about the third enemy being fear. And here's what he says. War threatens us with death and pain. No man, and especially no Christian who remembers Gethsemane, where Christ was crucified, that Christ was crucified, and all the difficulty he went through, all the, the, the brutal torture he went through. He says, no Christian need try to attain a stoic indifference about these things, but we can guard against the illusions of the imagination. We think of the streets of Warsaw, because that had just been invaded when Lewis was giving this sermon. And contrast the death there suffered with an abstraction called life. But he says this, but there is no question of death or life for any of us, only a question of this death or of that death, of a machine gun bullet now or cancer 40 years later. What does war or a pandemic or anything else do to death? It certainly does, doesn't make it more frequent. 100% of us die. And the percentage cannot be increased. It puts several deaths earlier, but I hardly suppose that is what we fear. Certainly, when the moment comes, it will make little difference how many years we have behind us. Does it increase our chance of a painful death? He's speaking of war now. I doubt it. As far as I can find out, what we call natural death is usually preceded by suffering. And a battlefield is one of the very few places where one has a reasonable prospect of dying with no pain at all. Does it decrease our chances of dying at peace with God? I cannot believe it. If active service does not persuade a man to prepare for death, what conceivable chain of circumstances would? And you could say the same thing about, about a pandemic. If a pandemic does not persuade a man to prepare for death, what conceivable chain of circumstances would? Yet war does do something to death. It forces us to remember it. 
The only reason why the cancer at 60 or the paralysis at 75 do not bother us is that we forget them. War makes death real to us. And that would have been regarded as one of its blessings by most of the great Christians of the past. They thought it was good for us to always be aware of our mortality. And I'm inclined to think that they were right. Now, he ends the essay this way. And this, again, goes right to the heart of people that think politics is our savior. Here's what he says. Check this out. Again, C.S. Lewis. All the animal life in us, all the schemes of happiness that centered in this world were always doomed to a final frustration. In ordinary times, only a wise man can realize it. Now, the stupidest of us know. I never thought C.S. Lewis would use the word stupid, but he did. What's he saying? He's saying, look, man, if you think you're going to create a heaven on earth here, and you thought you could do that before the war, now, even if you're stupid, once war has shown up, you realize, no, that's not going to happen here. He said this, we see unmistakable the sort of universe in which we have all along been living and must come to terms with. If we had foolish, unchristian hopes about human culture, they are now shattered. If we thought we were building up a heaven on earth, if we, are, if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage to a permanent city satisfying the soul of man, we are disillusioned. And not a moment too soon. But if we thought that for some souls, and at some times, the life of learning humbly offered to God was, in its own small way, one of the appointed approaches to the divine reality and the divine beauty which we hope to enjoy hereafter, we can think so still, unquote. In other words, Lewis is saying, look, learning is a gift from God, especially when it leads us to him, to his divine reality, to his divine beauty. And even though there's a war going on, that should be our priority, or at least it should be a priority. That we should not shrink away from that, despite the fact that a war is going on. Now, there are so many lessons here for us, many of them I've mentioned, but it seems to me that our culture has urged us to become monomaniacs, that politics is everything. Well, look, if there is no God or afterlife, why shouldn't politics be everything? Let me force my way of life, my preferences on everyone else, because I need to create my heaven on earth here right now, because there's nothing more important than me, and there's nothing after this life. And tragically, this has even infected the church. Many in the church now, they're not so much involved in theology, but meology. It's all about me. God wants me to be happy, so I'm going to try and, and, and chase whatever happiness I think I can chase and forget what the Bible or God or Jesus says about any of this. God wants me to have things my way. What's different about that than the atheist saying, I'm going to put my preferences on you? As we've said so many times on this program, unless God exists, every political and rights position is merely just a preference. It's just your opinion against somebody else's. Why is Hitler wrong? If there is no God. And Lewis eloquently points this out in Mere Christianity. 
this is from memory now, I don't have it in front of me, but he said, the moment you say that one set of moral ideas can be closer to the true good than another set of moral ideas, you are thereby measuring them both by a standard, a standard that's external to each. And that standard is God himself. In other words, the moment you say that the Allies had better values than the Nazis, you're thereby appealing to a standard outside of the Allies and the Nazis to say, oh, the Allies are closer to the real right way to live than the Nazis are. That can only exist if God exists. So why is it that everything is now political? Because people have lost the idea and the truth that God exists and he has a reason for why we live and how we should live. We think we need to try and create utopia here on earth. And many people who think politics is everything, that is their motivation. That is never going to happen. You're never going to have a utopia here on earth. That doesn't mean we don't fight for truth and justice and all that. Don't get me wrong. I'm simply saying if your expectation is, is that there's going to be utopia here on earth prior to Christ's coming, you are mistaken. You're a, you have a misunderstanding of human nature. I mean, the United States of America is supposed to be fighting for truth and righteousness. We're supposed to bring goodness around the world, and yet we leave our own American citizens in the hands of terrorists? If we're not putting forth justice, if we're not protecting the innocent, who is? No, we're just as sinful as everybody else. Now, Lewis goes on in this essay. I, I gave you the conclusion, but right in the middle of the essay, he says this. Again, this is instructive for us today. He says, most of all, perhaps we need intimate knowledge of the past. Not that the past has any magic about it, but because we cannot study the future. And we yet need something to set against the present to remind us that periods and that much which seems certain to the uneducated is merely temporary fashion. And as we'll see here right after the break, much of what is being put forth in politics is temporary fashion. It's not really true. It's a fad. Anyway, he goes on to say, a man who has lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. And how can you, be, how can you live in many places if you don't move away from America? Well, you can read history. That's one way you can kind of get in the minds of other places. You can learn about what, how other people did things, even if you don't go there. Anyway, he says, a man who has lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. The scholar has lived in many times, because he's read so much, that's what Lewis is saying. The scholar has lived in many times and is therefore in some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphone of his own age. There is so much nonsense pouring from the press and the microphone of our age, ladies and gentlemen, that unless you're well-read, you might buy into it. And right after the break, we're going to look at some of the nonsense. And some of this nonsense is being pushed on us in politics. In fact, there are so many issues that have become more political in recent years and decades why? What are these issues? What do we as Christians say or do about them? How much should we be involved? We're going to talk about it right after this break. 
And by the way, if you want to learn a lot more about this, you ought to get involved in Southern Evangelical Seminary, ses.edu. That's where I went. If you go to ses.edu and forward slash Frank, they're going to give you a 10% discount on your first course. You ought to take one over there. All right, we're back in just two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Why do you think people in Afghanistan right now, tragically, are living with fewer freedoms? Some of them are being tortured. Some of them are being murdered. Some of them are our own American citizens because President Biden left them over there. Why is that happening? It's happening because of politics. In fact, if you don't think politics are important, then you don't think the gospel is important as I mentioned in the tweet that I started off this program with, politics affects our ability to live and preach the gospel. It's affecting the ability of people in Afghanistan right now to live and preach the gospel, or people in North Korea, or people in Iran, or people in China, or a thousand other places around the world. Politics is important for no other reason that you need to protect your ability to live and preach the gospel, and also because you want other people to flourish. But it's not an idol. It's something you have to put effort into, but it's not your savior. Now, look at what has become political just in recent years and decades. I'm just going to list a number of things off the top of my head. You guys can probably think of other issues that have suddenly become political in recent years and decades and weren't political in recent years and decades. Uh, If you go back, say, 60, 70 years, sex was not a political issue. Now it is. Marriage, not a political issue until about the past 20 years. Marriage has always been between between a man and a woman. For what reason? Well, there's not only religious reasons for it, but also societal reasons that you recognize a man-woman relationship over every other relationship. Because... What marriage does is it perpetuates and stabilizes society. It brings forth the next generation and nurtures the next generation. And most of our societal problems are due to the broken family. And if you don't privilege marriage between a man and a woman, you are ultimately going to lead to a degradation of civilization, of your society. And we're seeing that. Only a marriage between a man and a woman can procreate and nurture properly children to come out the best they can possibly become. Yes, I know that there are exceptions. Single people can do that. We, we get that. But every piece of data shows us that kids turn out better when they're brought up with their biological mom and dad in a home that uh, nurtures them. A birth control. <laughs> Giving it to children is a political issue now. Yeah, we ought to give birth control to children in school. Gender is a political issue now. In fact, uh, I just came across this. Uh, Phoenix Hayes, who works with us as an apologist herself, sent me this little, this little meme. It said, calling yourself non-binary categorizes everyone into binary or non-binary, creating a binary system, which again makes you binary again. Yeah, you can't get away from it. And as we pointed out on this program before, transgenderism presupposes fixed genders. Because 
if, if I'm a man and I think I'm a woman, I have to have some idea what a man is and some idea of what a woman is in order to even know the difference. And also, if I'm going to try and make the so-called transition medically or, or, or surgically, I again have to know what a man is and what a woman is in order to do so. So transgenderism presupposes fixed genders. It's also political now as to who can get pregnant, despite the fact that what the truth is and what science says you have people now trying to say birthing people rather than women. I mean, this, of course, is madness. Cross-dressing, that's what we used to call it. Now it's a political issue. Bathroom use. Did you ever think we'd, we'd have political arguments about what bathroom you should use? Oh, we do now. How about school curriculum? It used to be reading, writing, and arithmetic. Now we're teaching kindergartners about sex. We're also teaching students to be racist to judge people based on the color of the other person's skin, which is exactly what racism is. That's, that's what critical race theory actually teaches, if it teaches intersectionality. Now, some critical race theorists will argue over that, but that is being taught in school systems now, whether they call it critical race theory or not. And by the way, next Thursday night, Alan Parr and myself will be talking together about critical race theory, a black Christian and a white Christian talking about it on our Hope One show and his on his channel as well, 7.30 Eastern, Thursday night. I think it is the 9th of September, if I'm not mistaken. So I hope you guys can join us there. Also, teaching students to attempt to change their gender without parental knowledge is going on now. That's turned into a political issue. Notice I didn't even say parental consent. Without parental knowledge, they're trying to do this. And uh, Abigail Schreier has a wonderful column on that, wonderful meaning a good column, not, not in, the, in, in, in her arguments, but obviously it's a bad topic or it's a bad thing people are doing to try and change the gender Teachers are trying to hide this from their parents, from the, the parents of the children that they're, 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 they're trying to do. And Abigail Schreier points out what a tragedy that is because we're giving kids medication that will make them sterile forever. It's irreversible. And parents don't even know about it. Kids can't make these decisions at that age. They don't know what's going on in their bodies at that point. And yet teachers think they know more than the parents and are taking rights away from the parents. This is a political issue now. How about leaving innocent Americans in the hands of terrorists? I, I still can't believe we've done that. I think President Biden ought to be impeached or he ought to resign. And so should his military brass. And I wrote about this. Uh, you can read about it in townhall.com or stream.org. Here's the title. Uh, I don't have time to get into it now. The title of the column, The Only War Joe Biden is Willing to Fight. And you know what that war is? A war against reality. That's the only war he's willing to fight. He's trying to ignore what he did over there, and he's trying to ignore the fact that we left our own people in the hands of murderers and people that torture Christians, kill Christians, kill Americans, kill Afghan allies. This is a tragedy, and it is certainly impeachable. The man should not be in office. But you can read about why I think so in the only war Joe Biden is willing to fight. I can't believe it's political, and it's a political issue now. Why would we? What happened to no man left behind? We would never leave people behind, especially when we had a military force there that could rescue them right then and there and get them out. 
You know what else is uh, political? Vaccines. And whatever happened to my body, my choice? <laughs> what happened to that? By the way, I don't think people seem to realize this. It hasn't been put forth, I don't think, clearly. And you guys can write in and tell me if I'm wrong on this. Hello at crossexamine.org. But what I've been reading, what I've been seeing is that the COVID vaccine does not stop COVID. You can still get COVID even though you have the vaccine. And you can still transmit it even though you have the vaccine. What it tends to do, the vaccine that is, is lessen the symptoms when you get it. It doesn't stop the transmission. This is why, as one doctor put it, why are we having an outbreak of COVID in, in summer, in August? Because people think if they've got the vaccine, then they can't transmit it. They can't get it and they can't. That's not true. Also, masks are now a political issue. Actually, my wife wants a permanent mask mandate because she thinks I look better with a mask. So I have to wear it even in the house, okay? <laughs> but that's a political issue. Abortion. Oh, yeah, you don't think politics are important. It seems there was a favorable decision this week from the Supreme Court. It's not a permanent decision. They just said we're not going to stop the Texas law from going into place. And Texas basically banned abortions anywhere after six weeks of pregnancy once the heartbeat starts. And the government doesn't enforce this. It's that people can sue one another. People can sue someone for doing an abortion or uh, assisting with an abortion. And I saw a report on this. In fact, Tucker Carlson had it on his program where someone who was running an abortion clinic in Texas said it's heartbreaking that they're basically stopping abortions. <laughs> Ironic she used those words, heartbreaking, because that's what exactly what the bill is about. They want to stop the literal breaking of hearts. It's a, it's a heartbeat bill. Once the heartbeat's there, you can't kill it. And she says it's heartbreaking to stop breaking hearts. What about the heart of the baby and often the mothers who are later heartbroken? These laws which allow abortion for any reason, while it gives the fathers a way of getting rid of an inconvenient child. Yeah, mothers are often pressured to get abortions when abortion is legal. And it, makes, it takes fathers off the hook because they can try and force the woman to get an abortion. And who has all the remorse later? It's the woman. And now people are dead. How about rioting versus protests? That's a political issue now, too. It's okay to gather and not social distance if it's for a good cause. You remember that? As long as we're, as long as we're supporting BLM, forget about social distancing. That's no longer a problem. Forget about masking up. That's no longer a problem. But if a group of, of conservatives get together, oh, you can't do that. How about police? Police is now a political issue. Police. And ladies and gentlemen, we'll talk about this on the uh, live stream with Alan Parr about critical race theory and all this. There is not an epidemic of white cops killing unarmed black people. There were nine such cases in 2019. So far this year, there's been four. Now, we wish the air, it was zero. But by the way, unarmed doesn't mean literally unarmed. In some cases, they were resisting arrest. They had a brick. They had something else. But it doesn't mean literally unarmed. And so there's no pandemic. I mean, people out or, or there's no epidemic of this. People think there is. But when they look at the data, they go, wow. 
we're, we're actually not seeing as much of this as we think there are. And there's so many other things. In fact, it's political now as to whether or not you go to church. Churches have been shut down. Freedom of religion, freedom of association, freedom of speech, censorship. These are all political issues. Are Christians not to get involved? We have to get involved, ladies and gentlemen. How do we protect our freedoms and the freedom of others? How do we protect other people? We have to get involved, but it's not our idol. We don't want to fall in a ditch on either side. We'll pick this up another time, ladies and gentlemen. There's a lot more to say, but I'm Frank Turek. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget about the new course. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. There are many others up there. We'll see you next time. God bless.